the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. I know that I've had guests before, and this podcast is called The Leadership Woman, so they are about leadership. You will also know, those of you who listen regularly, that it's a lot about self-leadership. If we can't influence ourselves, then we've got no business trying to influence anybody else. But the main reason for choosing a guest is because of their story, something that I can see they have gone through something and they have had to face various challenges and how they've done that will be really useful to other people. So um, I won't say much more, but this is why I have chosen as my guest today, Denise Clark. Welcome, Denise. Hi, Jill. And she is a psychologist and psychotherapist, has been in the education sector and uh, in diplomacy before. Um, she's 49. She didn't, didn't mind me saying that. Um, <laughs> moved to Luxembourg to follow her partner uh, some years ago. And she is the co-founder, I believe, for Action for Happiness. Is that what yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the first time that Action for Happiness, which is a UK-based um, charity, NGO, let's say, um, initiative um, that's come to Luxembourg now once a month. It's a group that gets together and we look at um, how we can connect and uh, let's say just to bring a little bit more joy to each other's lives. Just to bring some joy to each other's lives. And actually, I've been on one of your monthly calls and, uh, and it was very good. If anybody is listening, where can they find the information? <laughs> Let's do the end first. Actually, if, <laughs> if yeah, sure. Um, if they contact um, Action for Happiness um, via email, that will go straight to the UK. They will then redirect them to me in Luxembourg. Okay, thank you. But today, we're not going to talk about that. So where do you want to start with your story? I can start from, I would say, the day that I realised that something was very desperately wrong in me. I was going to work as usual, dark outside. And as I pulled up the blinds, I said to myself inside, Denise, your soul is dying. And I will never, ever forget that day. And that was 2019. And um, by, by the end of July... 2019 I'd gone to my GP because I had discovered uh, blood in my stool uh, the next thing you know um, I was having a colonoscopy on the 2nd of August and uh, next couple of weeks I was on chemotherapy that must have been a shock it would be a, a shock for anyone you know after being so desperately unhappy for so long, I can I remember the summer of, of my being on the on the chemo in 2019 and being so incredibly happy and grateful. That might sound quite bizarre to many people because of the 
severity of my diagnosis. And for anybody that's been on chemo, it's not pleasant at all. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I was so full of joy that summer of 2019. And, and actually that joy has continued even in some of the darkest moments in hospital when I've had complications. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for adding that. I think it's important to hear the, the joy in all of this journey. But it, it's strange though, isn't it? And I, I don't know what, what, why that was, but it was almost because I'd been given another, maybe it was, I, I'd been given a chance to live. And I was not living, Jill. I was not living when I pulled up those blinds that morning to go to work. I was dying, literally. And then I got the diagnosis and boom. It was a wake up call and I was given a chance to live. And then, and then I decided to live and I really lived. And that's why possibly I was experiencing so much joy. I just want to take you back because I know that you felt when you when you said my soul is dying, there's usually contributory factors towards an illness. It doesn't come overnight, does it? No. Um, no. What are some of the things that you think may have caused this? Yeah, um, I was desperately unhappy in my work. I had separated from the man you know, that I'd come with to, to Luxembourg um, about a year and a half before that, I'd moved out into a very, very small apartment. I'd given up a lot of my hobbies. I'm, I'm a musician, I'm a singer. You know, I'd given up things because I was also studying a master's in psychology and I'd taken on a new job, uh, was unhappy. I was just desperate. I would say I was desperately unhappy. I felt a failure, Jill. I had to accept that I probably wasn't going to have children. I was 46. You know, I'm pretty traditional as well. I didn't really see myself having children on my own. Um, and, you know, it's not so easy to find the man with whom you have children. And uh, so it was like, I just felt a failure. I hadn't got the children. I hadn't got the job that I loved. Um, I was in the smallest apartment I'd ever lived in in my entire life. You know, I just felt a failure. And that failure also is compounded by comparing yourself to other people or where other people have got to in life, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you do look around yourself um, and you see your friends, your peers and what they seem to have achieved and of course we, we go by the standards that we often go by the standards set to us all of these trappings of success I think that we have in the western world you know I just felt that I hadn't mm. achieved them mm. so therefore you know I, I must be a failure you've got all of this negativity around you and um, I think you said that when you went to the doctors you'd got this symptom and yet you felt well yeah you could say so, actually I didn't prioritize myself I said oh you know when things have calmed down at work I'll go to the doctors prioritize yourself people who are listening I hope that this is resonating with them don't don't ignore anything 
make sure that you go and get it checked out. That's the first thing. And the second thing, when, when you were talking to me, you talked about taking control, having agency throughout this process. Tell me something about that. I don't think I mentioned, but you know, it was um, colon cancer uh, with uh, metastasis on the liver and lymph glands. Uh, so it was pretty serious and they could not operate at that point. It was too far gone. And the only thing that was offered to me um, was, was chemotherapy. But I, I, I knew that, um, you know, whatever could be offered to me was not the only thing. And um, I also had a responsibility to myself as well to, to change what was in my control as well. So that meant that I went for a second opinion, even though I'd already started chemotherapy because it was pretty urgent. I went for a second opinion to Belgium and I, I started to change my diet. I became even more healthy than I was before. Cut out sugar, um, alcohol, not that I was drinking regularly anyway, but you know, I went on a very, very, very healthy diet. Um, I also went to see an Ayurvedic doctor in Holland to complement what was happening to me, what I was, um, the process that I was going through with the hospital. And yeah, I did not see my doctors as, you know, separate from me. Um, I saw them as part of a team, that I was a team with my doctors. And a team that very much you led, because I remember you saying that you rejected your first surgeon. Yes, my first surgeon looked at my file and looked at me and said, not a pretty picture, Madame Clark. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm not going to die. And she looked at me and she said, well, maybe you'll be one of the miracles. I walked out and when I met my oncologist, one of the first things I remember saying to her was, hi, nice to meet you. And by the way, I need you to believe in me. And I don't want that surgeon's hands coming anywhere near me. To which she replied, don't worry, we can change the surgeon. You know, and, and uh, I think that's really, really important and a message I'd like to get out to people. If you don't feel that the doctor you've been assigned resonates with you or believe in you then please look for another doctor I would say that's that's such a big part of the process of the healing process is trusting your doctor and knowing for me knowing that my doctor my oncologist and my surgeon that I was then assigned believed in me was enormous yeah enormous because you said to her, I will live. I yeah. need you to know this. I will live. Yeah. Powerful words. So what got you through this? Oh, well, first of all, I would say it was um, just being so held and supported and loved by my friends and family. Uh, it, it was almost like I'd got the diagnosis. It was pretty, pretty 
serious. Mm -hmm. And I accepted it. But what I did say to myself was, right, what are you going to do about it, Denise? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there's no time to cry. I would say that I, I didn't reject. The word is not reject, but I, let's say I gradually steered away from anybody that I thought might doubt my ability to get through this. I needed people to believe in me that when they looked me in the eye, there was no pity. I'm no victim. I hate that word victim. I was just somebody experiencing cancer like anybody can. And I just needed people to believe in me and love me. And, I, and that's what happened. And that was a huge part of my healing. And, and you know, this is a journey. It's still, I'm still on a journey. And these people are just, they're just so special to me. Yeah. No negative energy. That, that's what I'm hearing. No negative energy from friends, from people close to you, but also um, news. Yeah. I, I imagine. Yeah, I was an avid Guardian reader, you know, um, and yeah, you know, I loved being up to date with what was going on in the world. And all of a sudden that just kind of just wasn't that important anymore. And yeah, I just started to read things that were uplifting, that were going to help me on my journey. So I was, for example, one of the books that really, really inspired me was the autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda that I'd been given in India, like when I was 22, 23 on my journey in India. And that became my go-to book um, for inspiration and faith in myself. And also my wonderful GP gave me the link to a doctor in the UK called um, Rangan Chatterjee, who is one of the leaders of prescribing lifestyle medicine. And basically he, he became inspirational in my life and in my healing as well. And I think he is extremely famous now in the UK. I, I think I quoted him on Radio 2 and he's got a TED talk. He's, um, he, yes, yes. He's, he's, he's big in the world now. It's not just the UK, in America too. And I was um, honoured actually to have been accepted last year, last, last November on a week course in the UK, mainly designed for GPs, for generalists, whereby I learnt a lot about the structure of um, lifestyle medicine and it's something that now I actually include in my approach with clients in psychotherapy as well. When you say something like that it takes me to the thousands and thousands of years of medicine that we've had and the Chinese holistic approach. One of the key things about the TED talk from uh, Dr Chatterjee was that Doctors aren't dealing with the whole person anymore. They are just dealing with the symptoms and the point at which you have a disease. It's not about the point at which you get diagnosed with a disease. It's how are you today and what's your lifestyle like? Absolutely. I would say that that's my passion now. I actually want to work with people so that they ever get to the stage that I got to. I do believe had I been in a system whereby the whole, the person as a whole was um, looked at by the medical profession, 
I I think that I don't think I would have got to the stage that I got to, Jill. I was highly stressed. And I believe that if if I'd have had the blood tests, but also that, you know, maybe Denise, maybe you want to talk to somebody about what's going on in your life. How are you mm-hmm. sleeping? What are you eating? Have you got any meaning and purpose in your life? If I had been held, and I sometimes say, if I'd have been caught at that time, held, listened to by, you know, doctors, a therapist, a nutritionist, if there had been a multidisciplinary team around me at that time, I think I could have possibly prevented the diagnosis that I got given in August 2019. Yes, and of course every human on the planet can't rely on having a multidisciplinary <laughs> no. team That's walking true. around with them. So one of the purposes of, of the podcast is for us to put ourselves first, as you said earlier, people yeah. to sit and put themselves first and to, to make any changes that they need to make. So let, let's go. You started to talk about the changes that, that you made. You talked about food, but also I know that you had... A ritual. You said ritual was important. Yeah. Um, I think when when you're going through something um, serious like um, like cancer, it's it's really important to um, have some kind of structure in your day, where by there is an way whereby you focus on on you, on healing, on getting better. So my ritual included prayers, included a meditation, positive affirmations regarding my health and healing, and visualizations. Very, very, it's very important for me to visualize things, not just to intellectualize things and say things. I actually visualized my killer cells in my blood as tiny little tiny little workmen on my liver, on my lymph glands, on my colon, working away every day that I'd go and visit and check on their work. And they would come to me and they'd say like, it's looking good, Denise. You know, your tumor's shrinking. It's getting smaller. You're getting there, you know, and uh, and that I did on a daily basis and I still do it now. And they're there, they're, they're looking after me. And, um, and I formed a relationship with them. And it, it might sound a bit bonkers to some people, but actually for me, it, it worked. And uh, I think, you know, the power of the imagination is something we should never underestimate. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound bonkers, in fact. Um, I can't remember the book that I was reading. But it was saying that actually, if you very, very strongly visualize something like uh, an action, uh, you're strengthening a muscle by picking something up, for example, Mm -hmm. you you would have to be extremely concentrated about it. But you could strengthen that muscle just through thought. I believe that 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 has been proven now. So why not? have these yeah. little uh, men going around doing, uh, and you're not old enough to remember the numbskulls, I guess. <laughs> they, the what? 
numbskulls, I think they were called. No, I don't. I don't know. They were either in Bino or Dandy, and they lived in a man's head, and they were the ones that were sorting everything out, processing <laughs> the food. But, but anyway. Wonderful. <laughs> That's what you made me think of with these little little people. Yeah. Uh, so you've got ritual. You you change foods. I know that you took out sugar from our previous conversation. Alkaline diet. Uh, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of Chatterjee's podcasts. I have to say, um, but also the music that I listen to. Uh, for example, there's a, a great Swedish singer called Fia, and she writes her own music, and it's she has beautiful inspirational spiritual lyrics. Yeah, gave me a, a lot of uh, power and strength, actually. And I believe that you were asked to to do something. You well, uh, I was. Yeah, that's that's the right way of uh, saying it. Yeah, I when I got diagnosed, I knew that I needed to focus on something, and I invited somebody I know, um, a composer here in Luxembourg, for breakfast at my house, and I said to him, you know. I love music. Is there any way I can help you? Can I do any secretarial work? Just please just, I need to be occupied with something that, that I love. And he just said to me, well, do you know what? If you want, why don't you organize a concert at my house? And that was it. I, I then focused on organizing this concert that I called the Friendship Concert. And we had people from Spain come over. Um, Germany came. I had couple of professional musicians playing, but I also gave an opportunity to um, a couple of um, Iranian guys who were composers and musicians to perform. And uh, it was the most beautiful evening. And that kept me going, gave me a focus, gave me meaning and purpose. And um, I think it was a beautiful um, opportunity for people to share their love of music and the arts. Yeah. With, without any pressure, without any um, payment, it was just sharing. Just sharing, yeah. She talked before about the importance of social circle, the importance of people, the importance of joy. And you mentioned there meaning and purpose. Do you want to say a bit more about meaning and purpose? It's, it's difficult to say what has got me through this period. It's been nearly two years now. But I would say one of the most important factors has been realising and finding what my meaning and purpose is in life. Um, I know with you, Jill, we've, um, we actually read the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and that resonated with me so much, whereby he, he talks about, you know, that his experience in the concentration camps were... were you know, he got through that in a way because he knew what he wanted to do when he got out. And I knew what I wanted to do when I got through the cancer. I wanted to work in the field of lifestyle medicine. And I wanted to help people to, to empower people to take agency over their, their lives, their mental health, as well as, as well as physical health. And that is still with me now. And I know that it's been, it's been absolutely instrumental in my healing. Yes. Man's search for meaning. And um, I think the four agreements as well, that, that's uh, a really good book. 
it, even the one agreement, don't take things personally, can yeah. keep some of the stress away. Yeah. Right? We're not so good at uh, not taking things personally. Yeah. Uh, so just to recap, because I know that people are wanting to think, okay, well, what did she do? There were things about, first of all, prioritizing prioritizing yourself, not ignoring any signs. Uh, another thing was taking agency, making sure that you owned this process. It's not the time to please other people and just let them do as they like. Make sure you're making the decisions. Friends, family, social circles, make sure that you remove some of the negativity, if there's any there, and accept uh, the help that people are giving you. Then you talked about the, the tools, the things that you did, like the ritual every day, meditation, affirmation, visualization, the diet that you followed rigidly, the positive input into your body, like everything that you listened to, everything that you read had to be positive. Then you've got music was a big part and forming the friendship concert, just doing something practical was important. Finding meaning and purpose. I had a meaning and purpose. I knew what I wanted to do when I got through it. So what is your wish now for the future? Well, when I was diagnosed, I made a pact with God. And I, I said to God, I said, please get me through this and I will serve. And I don't know where I will serve, how exactly I will serve, but that is my wish. You know, I have the psychotherapy and psychology, let's say the, the qualifications. My passion lies in using this experience and using it to, to help others. You know, I've gone through nearly two years of chemotherapy, um, four op major operations. You know, it's gotta be for something. I, I want to use this experience to help others never to get to the point that I got to in July, 2019. Something else I, I would like to add is that in my ritual every day was and still is a huge amount of gratitude to those that love me and hold me and believe in me. And that is friends and family, but also the doctors and the nurses and the, the staff that were just absolutely incredible throughout all of this. They are kind of like sometimes the, the forgotten ones, but actually they, they, they are amazing people. So gratitude every day and I'm so grateful to be alive to tell this tale with you I'm grateful that you've asked me to share Jill and and I really hope that if there's only one thing that somebody could take from this from what we've spoken about today but that can help them make a change in their life that that is significant in helping them to become let, let's say a little bit more in control of their lives and, and to have a happier life a more joyful life then then, then you know what, my, my journey has been worthwhile. Thank you. I think you've answered my, my last question. That was, why did you agree to do this podcast? Because I know that you've not spoken. You've not done this before. No, 
I didn't want to talk about it in public. I didn't want people to know that we're not my close friends and family. Um, that wasn't because I was in denial or, um, you know, it may be part of it. And I still don't know why exactly, but I, I didn't want people to see me any differently. I still, I wanted people to believe in me that's, and to not pity me. Uh, I, the one thing I, I was steering away from all of that time was, was pity. I don't like these terms, these labels, you know, victim, survivor. I prefer to think of myself as a thriver, not a survivor. You know, <laughs> I feel, yeah, like let's thrive in life, you know, surviving. I don't want to survive. What a lovely place to end there. I don't want to survive. I want to thrive. Beautiful. Denise Clark, thank you very much for being a guest today on The Leadership Woman. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Jill.